So I considered looking at different options and I went and spoke to Misty from Bespoke and I think that was quite a pivotal discussion for me because she sat me down and she said, why do you want to leave? And I gave her all these reasons and she sat back, she looked me straight in the eye and she said, you need to get over yourself. (laughs) And I said, what? (laughs) She said, you are suffering from a case of unworthiness. You don't feel like you're worthy. And I thought, she's 100% right. Welcome back to the Business of Architecture and Design. This time we join our regular host, Isabel Tolland, director of Aileen Sage Architects, and our guest, Chi Mellum. Chi is a director at Sands Associates and has been with the practice for 17 years. We'd like to thank our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, which designs, manufactures, and distributes leading-edge furniture for corporate and commercial environments. Zenith Interiors inspires organizations to excel. Thanks also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. Synergy is cloud-based business and project management software for architects. It centralizes your business and project information, giving you more time for design. Try Synergy free for 30 days at totalsynergy.com forward slash ADR. Over to you, Isabel and Chi. Chi Mellum has been a director at Zions Associates since 2016. She has a diverse range of experience from feasibility and urban studies, large public, commercial and multi-residential projects, through to single residential work. Chi is a strong advocate for employment equality and leads the development of proactive employment practices at Zions to work together with each of their employees to realise their full potential. Chi also currently teaches a housing design studio in the Master's Art course at the University of New South Wales. We're delighted to have Chi with us in the studio and I'm really looking forward to seeing where our discussion goes. Thank you for joining us, Chi. So maybe you could start by telling us a bit about your background, where you were born and what your family was like growing up. I was born in Vietnam shortly after the war. We left as refugees in the early 80s and um, sailed over to Malaysia where we spent a year there. There was a refugee resettlement program which was started internationally and our sponsors just happened to be in Alice Springs. So we ended up in Alice Springs and I think that was a really good introduction to moving to a new country and kind of being in this small, very community-focused town. Growing up was was quite interesting. We lived in a co-living compound, I suppose you could say. Each, Each refugee family, I think there was five at the time, we each had a small bedroom, I suppose, with an ensuite and then a shared living kitchen and kind of communal garden area where we all ate and lived together for a period of years until we had enough money, I suppose, to afford our own homes and then and moved out and started our lives kind of more independently. But I think those early years were great for us. It, it really taught us the importance of belonging to a, a greater community and having these sponsored families really integrate us into their own lives. And that, that was, I, I think, a really strong lesson that I took from growing up in Alice. So how old were you when you were in Alice? I arrived in Alice when I was three and moved to Sydney at the end of high school to um, finish my uh, education in Sydney. And did your parents stay in Alice Springs then when no, you moved No, we, we all moved. I think it became apparent that to be able to continue a higher education, we did move need to move out of Alice Springs, which was sad for me at the time, but I think a good decision. Yeah, right. So are your memories of Alice Springs fond ones? They are. I think it was a, a really good place for a small child to grow up in a town that 
to me at the time seemed the only way to be Australian. Looking back now, I had a lot of multicultural friends, but that, that never really came into or it never made me question where they were from and, and, and what their differences were. We were all little Aussie kids, which I thought was great. Did your parents find the transition or move to Alice Springs from Vietnam difficult? They did initially, but I think we had such a strong network and community around us that they were able to, I guess, integrate really well. Mm-hmm. And it was quite a supported network that we were a part of. And it wasn't until we moved to Sydney that I think they really struggled then. Right, that's which so interesting. Which is quite strange because yeah. um, they didn't have many Vietnamese friends in Alice other than the refugee families that we grew up with um, and a lot of their friends were, were Australian. So they, I, I did feel like they were quite comfortable with that and their differences and it wasn't until we moved to Sydney and being surrounded again by a really big Vietnamese community that I felt like they went a little bit backwards, retreated back into what they would consider traditional old ways. Right. And I, I think they held on to these kind of values that they thought needed to be held on to without realising that a lot has changed in, you know, the 20 years that had since left Vietnam. When you finished high school, what drew you to decide to go and study architecture? I actually always wanted to be an architect. My dad, once he learned how to speak English, started a construction company and built Indigenous shelters for the NT government out in the remote areas of the Northern Territory in the Kimberley region. And right. he'd, he'd be gone for three months at a time. And I'd often, whenever I was able to, join him on some of his trips. And I was quite, I was quite surprised by what he was building and how basic these structures were, but how functional and how important they were for the communities that he was, he was building them for. And I thought... There's got to be a better way to get better design outcomes out of these really basic structures. And I think that that was really the start of what drew me to architecture. And was that a company he started independently? or he did. His, right. No, he started independently. Great. And so what did he transition to then when he moved to Sydney? He retired. He, for a period of time, he did try and go back and, and do that work there. But I think by the time we'd moved to Sydney in the kind of mid-90s, Work had changed, contracts had changed, the way government procurement was happening had changed quite Mm. significantly. So a small business like his no longer met a lot of the requirements that the government needed. So when we moved to Sydney, he started a furniture business and that was quite successful for a period of time. And I think they just, after that, they're quite old. They just wanted to kick back. All, All of us kids had grown up and left home, so there was no need for them to work anymore. How did he find that experience going out into remote Aboriginal communities as as someone who had moved to Australia and from that sort of Vietnamese background? Did he find that the communities responded quite well to him as, as someone that had kind of come from overseas as well? Did that sort of help bridge? I don't know, these kind it's of cultural... Funny, I've never actually asked him that question. Yeah. Um, and I think my memories of him going back to, into the outback... And when I was with him, it always seemed there was always such a kind of an open, welcoming aspect to what I experienced with the community. Mm. Um, he often engaged a lot of them on his projects, so they were involved in building with him. And his, his English is still to this day very poor. And I, I wonder whether that helped a little bit of the bonding because he he tried to learn some of their language mm. and they communicated through more through acts of giving and doing rather than speaking so there yeah. was there was a really nice 
unspoken way in which they all related. And But I'm remembering this from a child's perspective. Yes. So it all, to me at the time, seemed like a really kind of special way to to be engaged in these kind of community projects. Right. Do you think that that experience has influenced much the way that you work now or, your, you know, how you deal with particular situations now in architecture? Uh, I think it probably has without – I've never really actually thought about this until you've asked me. I think it has. I, I, I have a real strong people emphasis in everything that I do and it's not just the people we work with, it's the people that use our spaces and really understanding – what architecture is doing for people and how people are occupying these spaces are, are really is is really quite important to me. How did your parents react when you decided to study architecture? Were they happy about that? Well, I think because I had always said I was going to be an architect, it, it never really was There's a no question surprise. that that would happen. So they, I, I never have received any objections. Yeah, and endorsements. Well, I think with traditional Vietnamese parents, you very rarely get endorsement. Right. <laughs> Fair enough. And does anyone else in your um, family practice in architecture as well or in no, a related field? No, it's just me. So when you went to study architecture at the University of New South Wales, were there any particular experiences that you had during your studies that you think influenced the direction that you've now taken in your professional career? Yeah, I think the way the course was structured initially, I really enjoyed the kind of the the cross-collaboration between architects, interiors and uh, the construction stream. In our first year, we went away and had a construction camp and built some huts and that hands-on experience was really important and helped frame, I guess, my understanding of architecture being much more than just about, you know, a a beautiful object. It's about the craft and the technical ways Mm. in which it functions. So that kind of integrated approach really helped me, I guess, consolidate the way that I like to practice architecture. And during your studies, you worked at a couple of practices, is that right, as well? Yeah. Did you? How did you find those experiences? What were those companies like? I worked for quite a few sole practitioners doing single residential homes, and, and they were that was a great experience. I always thought that I would just be a residential architect. I enjoyed working with them because it, at the time it was kind of the the nineties. We were still drawing. There weren't there wasn't too much CAD. And that hands-on kind of um, experience with a pen was always very enjoyable and learning intricate detailing, client relationships, that was that really resonated with me. And towards the end of uni, I thought, well, I should try and broaden my experience and I decided to apply for a position with Lendlease, so mm. the complete opposite spectrum. And that was really good because I had never really worked in a team environment before mm-hmm. and I really enjoyed that. I liked seeing the way big practice was managed. I liked that exposure to the urban condition and understanding a building beyond its site and and looking larger. So I think that kind of breadth of experience from sole practitioner to something as large as as Lend-Lease was a really good way to diversify my interests in architecture. The Interior Design Excellence Awards are celebrating their 18th birthday this year and early bird entries for IDEA 2020 close on Friday the 27th of March. So don't forget to get your entries in now. And so after Lend Lease, is that when you decided to or approached Zanz to 
to get a job there? I, after Lynn I went back to um, working with another sole practitioner just to see whether I was doing the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> and then once I graduated from architecture, I thought, well, I actually really enjoy both ends of the spectrum and I really wanted to find a practice that could do both and also had a, a really good reputation with a, a good um, workplace culture. Mm-hmm. And so that was quite a few people I talked to said Zahn's was offering that. And so I applied for Zahn's. And how big was Zahn's at the time? There was, it was going through a massive um, period of growth. So there was 50 architects when I joined mm-hmm. and four directors, I think. And it ha- I'd say quintessentially it hasn't changed too much. We've had periods of growth and come back to about 50 and we're 50 now. Mm-hmm. I think the work that we did originally was much on a much smaller scale and it was very much internally focused. The, we weren't very good at the time of being able to externally communicate what it was that we were doing. So the perception for a very long time was that Zahn's only did high-end homes, whereas the reality was we were doing quite a broad range of work. So it's nice to see that we've been able to evolve that over the last couple of years and and now as a practice, being able to better understand our brand and our values and communicate that to others has meant that our work has very much broadened beyond what was the original kind of high-end homes. And so how old were you then when you started Zans? Was it, You must have been in your early, mid-20s? I was in my right? mid-20s, mid-20s, so yeah. I was 24. Right, and so life probably has changed quite a bit during that time from it when has. you started. And also, you know, professionally as a yes. recent graduate to your position now mm. as a director. Could you talk us through that journey? <laughs> <laughs> has it been challenging? It's been a very long journey. Um, <laughs> I have to say my story from graduate to director has been probably a little bit underwhelming compared to what others might expect. I, When I joined Zahn's, my focus was to work on interesting projects and, and have an insight into the whole process of architecture. I never was interested in being a director or being a leader. For me, it was always about the architecture. So when I joined Zahn's, it was a really busy period and we were building quite a few projects in that year and um, taking things from start to finish. So I had the opportunity to very quickly grow into a project architect role working um, directly with Alec on his house, mm-hmm. <laughs> which was an interesting experience in itself and other other homes, but at the same time being embedded in a team working on larger projects. So it was a really nice way to get a f- kind of a full understanding of the different scales of architecture. And then somewhere along the lines, I became quite interested in the business of architecture and understanding fees and how fees are put together, um, yep. how to track fees, monitor fees, how to manage a project and just some of the strategic sides of running a business. Um, and I think the directors recognise that interest, so they actively involved and engaged me in, in a lot of those things. And so by the time, really, I had my second child, they approached me and said, what are your thoughts? What are your bigger plans? Would you be interested in becoming a director? Right. And I, at, I that had never crossed my mind up until that point. And I was quite overwhelmed by it, actually. Mm. And I think having had my second child... I was finding the balance really hard. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wasn't sure whether architecture was the right profession to be able to facilitate this work-life balance. So I think that spooked me a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, maybe architecture isn't for me. Right. So I I said to the directors, no thanks, and I may, I may be leaving. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
so I considered looking at different options and I went and spoke to Misty from Bespoke and I think that was quite a pivotal discussion for me because she sat me down and she said, why do you want to leave? And I gave her all these reasons and she sat back, she looked me straight in the eye and she said, you need to get over yourself. (laughs) And I said, what? (laughs) She said, you are suffering from a case of unworthiness. You don't feel like you're worthy. And I thought, she's 100% right. I'm spending all my time comparing myself to these amazing people that I'll never be, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm just different. And so I I think that conversation really reaffirmed that I did want to be an architect. And then if I were to practice architecture anywhere, it was Zahn's. Okay. I was, I, you know, it's a great company to be a part of, all the right culture, all the right ethics. And I don't think I would find that in many other practices that I know of in Sydney. So I decided to stay And I said to the directors, I don't think I'm ready to be a director, but I would like to see what this position might entail. So they spent the next couple of years really involving me more on that side of the business. And I guess before I knew it, I'd fallen into the role. And I kind of stood back one day and thought, well, I'm doing everything that they've asked. I just don't have the title. Perhaps I should just say yes. (laughs) So I said yes. (laughs) So the rest who is history. The, and who were the people that you didn't feel like you were measuring up to? You mean within the practice or externally? Or uh, like was there a bit a of everything. I think the industry is full of such high performers and, you know, we're all perfectionists. And just to start with, I think I was, I mean, 37 at the time, I felt like I just didn't have the right experience to be a director and stand up next to all these people with these 10, 20 plus years of experience on me. And then be able to say with a straight face, I'm a director of a company as, you know, reputable as ours. Hmm. And so I think that's what really held me back. And what did you think was missing for you? Or what, as you said, you kind of, you were told to get over yourself and you did. Yeah. <laughs> so was it that kind of just the, that self-doubt then? Was that what you actually got rid of? Yeah. I think it's, a, I, I think I still have a lot of self-doubt and I think we all do. Um, hmm. We're all human at the end of the day. Yeah. It's, it's really understanding that we are all different we all bring without with you know we all bring a different set of skills and perspectives and what you bring or what we bring as individuals and how we collectively bring that together can really add to the diversity and richness of a, a firm or a practice or a project or or anything we do really mm. and that it's never an individual feat it's it's a collective feat yeah absolutely so coming back a bit to what you were saying about questioning that work-life balance and whether you felt that was possible within our profession, have you? do you feel like you've overcome that? How do you balance the work, work and life aspects of, of uh, your job? I don't think I've achieved balance. I'd say I, what I've achieved is coordination. Mm-hmm. <laughs> balance means different things to everybody and I think that's an important thing to remember is that we all have very different ways of working and different family structures and different situations. So we each need to find balance that suits us. And for me, what balance means is that I have an open and transparent structure of my day that gets broken up into chunks. So the mornings are about the children. The day is about work. At the end of the working day, I pick up my children and there's a, that period between kind of 7 and 8.30 that they go to bed and do the bedtime routine. Between 8.30 and 9.30 is dinner time with my husband. 
And then if required, 9.30 onwards, I might, I may need to log back on and do some work because yep. the day's so busy. That's the only time I get to think. And that, that suits me. Weekends, we have a very fine rule that we spend the days with the kids. Mm-hmm. And then if I need to, I might do some more things at night. Obviously, I try and avoid that, but that's, that sometimes can be a bit challenging. So that balance for me works for my family and, and, and my ability to be able to feed kind of my head which never seems to to switch off but at the same time it's it's fine for others to say well I only work between nine and five and after that it's all about what happens outside of work yeah and that's fine too and in terms of a workplace culture you mentioned that you felt Zahn's was somewhere that had a very good culture that attracted you to Mm -hmm. to the practice what is it about the work culture at Zans that you feel is quite particular and that you most enjoy and appreciate? I think we have a very strong culture that has been established from the, the get-go by Alec. I think an ethical employment um, workplace is hard to find in this industry um, and there are a couple of defining things that, that Zans has done and has always done. The, f- the first is we pay overtime. And I think that's really important. We've got such a horrible culture of long hours that people need to be valued and mm. their time needs to be valued. But what's important about overtime is that it's not just an, an open process. You, it actually starts from the beginning. Yes. you need. We need to have a look at the fees and the scopes that come in from our clients and say no and put back a program that is achievable, yeah. redefine our scope make sure that we've got the price right in Mm. terms of the resourcing and the available time that we have so that we set up projects in a way that are sustainable for our staff. Obviously, there are going to be certain deadlines that can't be avoided. Mm. So when that happens, our staff have their overtime pre-approved and so it's a managed process because what we try and encourage is that staff get out the door by 6, 6.30 every day. So that's that's really important and I think um, it's important that our clients start to respect that a lot more as well. These large, particularly more public organisations, have such a focus on social sustainability in the way that they practice their business, but yet these horrific programs and scope get enforced onto architects and it, it goes against everything that they're promoting. And then also the contracts become... The way that contracts are becoming so litigious and all the risk gets spread downstream, I think is another thing that really is starting to impact the way that we work as architects. So, sorry, that was a very long way of saying we do pay overtime yeah, and that's yeah, really no. important. But I think um, recognising that you need to build that into your fees from the start and absolutely. what projects you take on and absolutely. how you deliver them is so important to take into account to being able to do that. You've got to start at the you know, at the start, don't it does. you? In it's, order it's, to I think people tend to think of overtime as as the end result. It, it and it and it kind of is, but to manage that properly, you need to start at the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the other thing is work flexibility. We have a all roles flex unofficial policy, so mm-hmm. um, which we're now formalising. Sixty percent of our staff work flexibly, and that's quite interesting because. We hear about the challenges of of working flexibly with other practices and how that can be disruptive to a business, but we actually see it as quite a positive because what it means is that senior staff who do have to work part-time or flexibly because of their other commitments, 
it allows for more junior staff to be able to step up in their roles and support these senior members who are working part-time. And you get this great kind of mentoring and working relationship that starts to happen between mm. the graduates and the architects with their senior, more advanced project leaders. And that's it's a really great way of advancing skills within the practice. And when we look at the metrics, 60% of our staff do work flexibly, 100% of directors, 100% of associate directors are working part-time, 50% of our associates are working part-time, and 67% of our seniors are working part-time. So that's a really interesting number for me because it, it means that the part-timers uh, are, are up at the more senior levels and we're still able to manage the business working that way. Thanks to Chi and Isabel, and to you for joining us. Listen in next time as we hear more from Chi about her journey through the business of architecture. The Business of Architecture and Design podcast is produced by Joanne Davies, publisher of Australian Design Review and Architectural Review. Madeline Swain, editor of Architectural Review and Niche Media. With thanks to our launch partner, Zenith Interiors, and also to our supporting partner, Total Synergy. For more information and links, visit the episode webpage. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us.